brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to a writer whose works have earned him worldwide critical acclaim. He is a winner of multiple awards spanning many decades, including the Somerset Maugham Award for his first collection of short stories, First Love, Last Rites, that was back in 1976, the Whitbread Novel Award in 1987 for A Child in Time, and the Booker Prize in 1998 for his novel Amsterdam. And as if that wasn't enough, he's also got a CBE and a Bodleian Medal. Several of his books have been adapted for the big screen, including The Children Act on Chesil Beach and, of course, the publishing phenomenon Atonement. His new novel, Lessons, was published in September and has been described as a powerful meditation on history and humanity told through the prism of one man's lifetime. He has been called Britain's greatest storyteller. And I'm absolutely thrilled to say welcome, Ian McEwan to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, Ian. Hi, thank you for that very nice welcome. Well, we could go on and on and on and on with your achievements. What do you think the greatest achievement is of your life thus far? I think building a life around and making space for and devoting 52 years to writing, actually, uh, and staying out of a job. I would say that was my biggest single achievement, was to live the life I dreamed for myself when I was 21. Um, you say it stopped you from getting a job, but there would probably be some kind of legal impediment to work in the kind of hours that you work when you are fully involved in writing a novel, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, this is Dickensian levels of labour. Yes, but when you're involved, um, time goes very quickly, that's one thing. The hours don't matter. You're glad it's moving. You're glad it's flowing along. You also know that sooner or later you're going to grind to a halt because hesitation is very much a part of writing a, a novel. So you've got to grab it while you can. You've got to exploit yourself like a Victorian grad grindian taskmaster with a factory full of children. You've got to really get what you can out of them. Uh, you've got to get what you can out of yourself. So you don't mind. It's, it's, I still have that sense of romance, working into the night. The rest of the world has fallen asleep and I'm still here. That's a great feeling. It's a wonderful sense of being fully in the moment, uh, fully engaged with what you're doing, with a sense of selflessness and timelessness around you and knowing it can't last. That's the point. That's why you have to sometimes put in those long, long hours. Does the creation of people and their worlds make you feel powerful? Or does at times it make you feel helpless? I don't know about powerful. I think it's more a kind of delight. And I talk here of when things are going well. And of course, when you talk to writers, they are always um, working with highly selective memories. I mean, because there are longer, of course, especially for me anyway, especially the beginning, 
uh, in the first 30, 40,000 words, you think, am I only proceeding with this because I daren't give it up because it would be to admit to myself that the last nine months have been wasted? Do I really want to be with this? Is it the thing I actually had in mind? Is it uh, running away with me, uh, running away from me? So, yeah, there's a delight in watching a character come into the frame there's a delight of discovery, too, of even at the level of a sentence, finding things that you did not know two hours before, opening up pathways, that uh, possibilities, things that liberate you into more material, different material along the way. So at its best, there is in creation, characters, situations, settings, all of it, very particular form of delight. You know, uh, we, we still live with a, a bit of the hangover of the romantic tradition that creation is agony. We have to just also remember that there are those moments of what we rather lack the word for, flow has been suggested. When you're so fully engaged in what you're doing that you hardly know you exist, you don't even feel happy. I mean, you don't even feel anything. Uh, you are the material in front of you. And I think many of us, I mean, that, that's a special form of well-being that we don't celebrate enough. And it's available to all of us. I think that sort of out-of-body experience of total engagement, which you know, comes to us if we're lucky now and then, whether we're novelists or not, is one of the greatest uh, happinesses in life. And again, happiness is not quite the word. It's more like well-being. And actually, even the well-being is only in retrospect. It's only when you snap out of it, you think, oh, wow, that was something to be fully there and look up and see that two and a half hours have gone by. I live for those moments. I think they're truly splendid. Is it a given that those moments, when you do lose yourself in it, will be where you are most creative? I think so. Right at the beginning of my writing life. I wrote very, very slowly. I sort of bled the sentences onto the page. I did not, I could never just let it flow out. I just distrusted everything I wrote. Every sentence I wrote, even half a sentence I wrote, seemed to glare back at me and say, but is this what you meant? Those moments of um, total involvement and well-being that I've just described were very, very rare for me. I could not find them, did not have them. But slowly, uh, and it took me years, actually, I was a, my apprenticeship in writing was long. Slowly, I became more familiar with the process of my own mind and my own methods of creation. And I'm not saying that writing got easier, but it certainly flowed in, in, in ways that were completely out of my reach when I was writing my early short stories. I would take 10 weeks to write a 5,000, 4,000-word short story, constantly going over and over it. I felt the language, I felt uneasy. Um, I didn't sit inside the language well enough. 
And perhaps that process gave the stories their odd and spiky quality, which people thought that I'd arrived at by some amazing technique or a set of decisions, but was more out of a kind of scepticism about my own processes. Can you, Ian, contrive your way towards that state of mind? Or is it something that only comes by just letting yourself go? There's a bit of luck involved, and the discipline is to turn up at your death. Make yourself turn up, even if you don't much feel like it. I've had quite a few beginnings in novels by resorting to an A4 notebook and taking a black pen. It always has to be black for some reason. Um, Like most writers, I have a little series of superstitions and play around with a paragraph or two which owes no responsibility to the world. I don't even let myself think I'm trying to write a story or a novella or a novel. Something about working in longhand after so much time on the keyboard uh, is liberating and seems closer to thought than anything else. And it is amazing how inking symbols onto a page uh, represents thought and the act of reading enables this form of telepathy whereby you transfer your thoughts inside someone else's head. It needs no spooky magic. It's, um, it's what we did when we invented writing, an amazing device for thought transfers. Anyway, without that responsibility of anyone else or any sense of duty to things, I find that now and then something happens when I'm free inside a paragraph that catches in a surprising way at an odd angle, something I've been making notes about and thinking maybe a month or two before. Uh, And then I have this paragraph. Atonement started that way. Lessons started that way. Uh, Quite a lot of books I've written started just out of dreaming onto the page and somehow catching in a particular situation a character, the beginnings of a character coming towards me as if through a mist. Uh, Just an outline. Sometimes that leads nowhere, that paragraph, but sometimes, and here's where the luck comes in, it does connect. Then the word is freedom or liberation. You've found the means to do something in fiction about the little messages you might have been sending yourself. By message, I mean something like a note that says, what about a love affair right at the end of the world, let's say, an example. Well, that's fine. That might or might not be interesting, but it makes no sense unless you actually have some lines, some words, the beginnings of a character, a situation, a place, a time, a city, anything. It needs the flesh of something specific. It's almost like I'm tricking myself into getting going. I'm a very slow starter. I might extend that to two or three or 5,000 words. Then there's a wonderful transitional process of typing it out. And even as I type it out, I'm revising it. And then when it's in 
on a screen staring back at me, it has almost a public existence. It's almost like publication day, that transition from the private space of longhand uh, in a secret notebook to the white glare of a screen. And then I think, have I got something? I'll press on a bit further. And then sooner or later, maybe it's around about 20,000 words, I think I've married it. You know, uh, there's no going back. We've joined. Uh, there might be doubts later on. Did I marry the wrong thing, the wrong person? Uh, generally, it's too late. I'm, I, if I'm married, I'm married. I'm, I'm in. I'm getting going. I'm pushing on. And actually, I, I've spoken to many writer friends about the role of mood in writing. There's a tendency to think that the, whatever you've got in front of you is only as good as the last paragraph. If you're unhappy with the last paragraph, the rest can, it runs the danger of turning to ashes. If you're pleased with the last paragraph, everything else springs back into life. So there's a good discipline. There's the whip. Just write the best paragraph that anyone has ever thought of and then just write the next one on the same terms and you know in a couple of years you'll have the best novel that was ever written simple as that did roland baines who is at the heart of lessons appear to you through the mist as a child or as an adult or as an old man he appeared to me just as he appears to the reader in the opening pages of the novel as an 11 year old boy having a nervous piano lesson with a very strict but beautiful piano teacher who not that he knows it is sexually grooming and I went through all the processes with that that I described but then I realized it's quite clear to me that this is the thing I've been wanting to write I suddenly saw this was going to cover the second half of the 20th century and a big chunk of the 21st and that although this boy was not experiencing anything that I had, I was placing him in a very familiar little room where I used to have music lessons at my boarding school, a state boarding school, now long since closed, but a rather wonderful place, actually semi-experimental. And I suddenly saw how fiction and biography were going to merge, how memory and invention going to sit side by side because this boy was me and was not me this experience was not mine but the room was and that was one of those moments that uh, I've just mentioned of liberation I suddenly saw by writing this little scene between a boy and a teacher who smacks him with a ruler and he runs from the room embodied everything that I'd been thinking of six months before of wanting to write a long novel that would cover an entire lifetime. And here it was. Suddenly I had a way in and a person who would carry me through this. In understanding that you were going to write a long novel, what was the greater emotion, a sense of relish at taking on 500 pages or fear? Uh, there were moments of fear later, but at the beginning my sense of it was... Uh, that I would be completely unhurried. I might spend five years or seven years writing this. I might spend three or four 
But whatever it was, I'd feel under no pressure of time, I would simply live inside it. So closer to relish, although relish may be a little too strong. What I hadn't reckoned on, as I was planning this in 2019, was the pandemic and that life would close down, isolation would descend, and I would really be able to live inside this in ways that I I've never been able to read a novel. I've never had such unbroken time. All of us who write novels know that agreeing to go to, let's say, Tirana in Albania in 18 months' time, while you were at a loose end, might mean you shouldn't have stopped. You've broken your stride. You know that when you go back, whatever you write is going to be different from what you would have written had you stayed, and also it's going to take you a while to get back into that stride. Now, suddenly, even as tragedies were unfolding for people who were very sick and others who were really feeling the isolation sharply, I had the luxury of an amazing emotion, week after week, day after day, just heaven. I just sank into it in a kind of bliss. So it got done quicker than I thought. I've been probably beginning to end only three years. When constructing the structure within which the novel exists, how do you ensure that the technical prowess does not detract from the emotional power? So you're so obsessed with the architecture that you could potentially fail to connect with the reader. It's a very interesting question. Um, I wonder, I mean, I don't have a sure answer to that, but I wonder if when you're writing, let's say, a 30,000 word long novella, where the structure really is omnipresent, uh, it's, it's almost like a character, where that business of the lived life being somewhat at odds with how to do it or what the techniques to be deployed are. Whereas if you've given yourself the space and time to write a longer piece, you can sort of spread yourself into the scenes and be a little more secure. I mean, perhaps I can come at this another way. Fairly early on, I thought this novel falls into three parts. Each part has four chapters. Each chapter is somewhere between 10 and 15,000 words long. If you've got 15,000 words to deal with you know, two or three important things, you could really abandon yourself to it. But you've also got the security you're contained by this chapter. It really helps in the matter of time. The novel moves about in time, sometimes jumps ahead a few years, sometimes a long way back. You can make it friendly to the reader that in whatever time frame that reader finds herself, there's enough space to become accustomed to it, to live in it. And I like the security of those structures. It means a lot to me to be know that I've got this pattern and to write to it. But then I can forget about it. I can live inside it. I can attend to the emotions, to the drama, and also to that fascinating matter that haunts all social realism 
um, how to create on the page by great artifice the plausibly shared world that we all inhabit. Not the world of dragons or magic realism, but the one that you know has the city, the politics, the shared history that we all have. And abandoning yourself to that becomes possible once you have the security of a structure and the structure is large enough to let you even forget it. Ian, we asked you to bring a few things to talk to us about, as we always do yeah. on the Penguin podcast. Can I start with the larval rock? Oh, yeah. Why was this important to you? So back in um, the mid-90s, I was falling in love with my wife, Annalina. That very headlong, giddy process, rather like skiing down a mountain when you only had two days' instruction on how to ski, and the snow is icy, and you know you can't stop. But she had a long-standing arrangement to go on holiday with some friends, and she was very close to those friends' children as well. So there's no question she had to go. It was a bit like breaking off from um, <laughs> writing a novel. So off she went, and I said, well, bring me back a nice present from Sicily, which is where she was going. And when she came back, she came back with this little piece of rock. Something about it struck me... Sometimes in life, metaphors sort of erupt into your life. So here's a piece of rock, but it's absolutely permeated by air. It's something very solid, but it's also very light. And it costs nothing. She just picked it off the ground as she was walking up in Vesuvius. And I thought, this is the most wonderful present. And I hope that we'll be a bit like this rock. Not steadfast like a rock, but light. <laughs> Um, it has these very important elements. I'm not sure I could get away with that in a novel, but I might, I, somehow in life you could. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's a question I often ask music artists, Ian, and it's about balancing or finding space for another human to love when often the thing that you love most is what you do. And music artists are completely immersed in music. It's what they've always wanted to do. And sometimes a person, another human coming into that, yeah. doesn't quite understand the compromise that has to be made with an artist, with a creator. Because you may not be the person or the thing that they love most in the world. Yes. Um, but there is a moment of sharing too, which is that sooner or later that artist, that musician or for that matter, that writer, is going to produce the work. And the work is the bridge to the state of mind. Mm. And in my particular history, Annalena works in newspapers. So she, at times she was at the Financial Times and later she was at the Guardian. And like all people who work on newspapers, one of the most interesting things about it is the office and the people and the Everything that's missing from a writer's life is just sat silently at the desk, achieving or failing to achieve whatever it is. And the only way around that, I found, was every three or four months to say to her, can I read to you? And that's the closest I could get in that context to say a musician could say, well, I've written a piano sonata, can I play it to you tonight? Um, <laughs> If only. 
So reading aloud um, became the way in which I could at least repay her for all the stories that she would have every day. But yes, I mean, I take your point too. All artists are in a private world and that world in a daily sense is inaccessible. Well, that's how it is. I mean, that's just how it is. There's no way around it. Let's go on to your next object, Ian, which is a mountain goat. Ah, yeah. So it's a little piece of ivory that someone has very expertly carved. I'm now 74. Yesterday I had an MRI scan, both my knees. I've sort of worn them out with hiking and going up and down mountains. I keep this mountain goat by my side because a long time ago when I was coming down a mountain very fast, a friend said, you are a mountain goat. You move like a mountain goat. And it's true. I used to be able to, I just leapt from stone to stone. I didn't walk down. I sort of leapt down. Uh, even then I was in my mid-40s. Now I can no longer do that. Uh, so the mountain goat reminds me that I, I once had some affinity with it. We'll never get it back, but it's a pleasure to look at it and be reminded. How does it become, I mean, it's a pleasure in sense of memory. Yeah. But it's also a reminder of what you can't do. So you have to make peace with that, which clearly you have made peace with. Otherwise, <laughs> no, presumably, can... you couldn't look at the goat anymore. I think when you enter your 70s, um, a great deal of your life is connecting up with things that are no longer available to you. And it's... Uh, steady preparation for complete oblivion. I remember talking to John Updike. I was asking him about death. He had said something like, I'm getting rid of nearly all of my library. I'm just going to get it down to about 50 books and I'm going to move to a smaller house. And I said, how much do you mind? Rather naive question. I said, how much do you mind? that you're going to die. And he said, I don't mind as much as I used to. I minded it more in my 30s than I mind now. And I begin to get, I'm not quite there yet, but I begin to get a sense of that. And possibly it's because as bits close down, it becomes less valuable. I mean, when you're 32 or 28, the peak of your physical powers, possibly mental powers, depends in which field. The thought of death just just what it was to me at least utterly horrifying that this should be taken away from you. When more is taken away from you by life, then there's less to lose. Becoming less of a mountain goat is one part of letting go. The much harder thing to confront is the mental equivalent of those things. So, for example, proper names not being so immediately available, hanging out with the people in their mid-30s and just finding yourself losing track of the conversation because it's going fast or there are some reference points that you don't get. Losing something, glasses, wallet, keys for the third time that day. Those are more bothersome. And especially for writers, you've got to stay thought-rich. When do you stop? It was so memorable when Philip Roth announced when he was 80, maybe just past 80, that he was stopping. But I think writers are like politicians. It's difficult. Politicians usually 
they have to fail or be in disgrace before they stop. They never quit while they're ahead or they're popular. And I think writers are much the same. So I rather admired Philip's cold, hard decision on that. I think it takes guts to just decide, that's it. I'm just, the rest of my life, I'm just going to cut my toenails and take my stuff to the dry cleaners. And That doesn't strike me as a decision you're going to make. No, probably not. Well, you've got six years to think of it. Six years, you think? You're killing me off at 80. Well, uh, uh, no, only because you said Philip Roth did it at 80. That's the only reason. Yeah, well. I said six years. Yeah, you forget my competitive streak. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly, that's true. Um, Your next object, uh, a maquette of your father. Yes. A lot of memories wrapped up in this. And it bears some relation to lessons. So my father was in the army all his life. He joined, he lied about his age at the age of 17, said he was 18. Uh, There was no work in Glasgow for him. He left school at 14. So he joined the Highland Light Infantry and uh, was injured at Dunkirk and spent the rest of the war uh, training soldiers. He was a rather fierce uh, sergeant major. And then he became an officer. And then even when he retired, and of course he had to retire at 64, not 65, he then got what was called a retired officer's job. So he no longer wore a uniform, but he ran a workshop that fixed tanks and trucks in North Germany, where the British Army post-war had a very long, long presence, which went up into, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And all his employees, instead of being soldiers, were German civilians. So my father got completely used to the German way of working, which he very much admired. The fact that there was a works council in which workers had as much voice as the management. Uh, They met every month. He was a great supporter of the trade union movement, and he always thought that British industry could never compete with Germany until workers were on the boards. And he was also very rather deaf from all the shells that were exploding around him while he was waiting to be rescued from Dunkirk Beach. And there's a little plaque at the bottom of this maquette. It was made as his leaving present. It says, Herr Schwartz. I think Herr Schwartz was his kind of um, generic for all Germans. Herr Schwartz, where were you at Dunkirk? He was always kidding the older employees of his workshop that they'd been shooting at each other generation before and now they were working together. And it reminds me that although my father was a highly complicated, very problematic person who was very domineering, he also had a very light and playful side and his German employees got that. And it reminds me too of how Germany has been very important in my life. Boarding school, I spent a lot of time traveling out there on the holidays. Lessons is my German novel, in many ways. This sits on a shelf in our house, and um, it just reminds me that, I I mean, I had a very complicated relationship with my father. I, I loved him, but I also feared him. And love and fear are a very strange and odd and disturbing mix. He never 
was physically violent towards me, but I just never dared cross him as a child. I was absolutely lived in terror of him. How did he manage, Ian, to instill that sense of terror without being physically? Well, he was a big, tough guy. He frightened my mother too, so I, I probably got it through her. She was afraid of him for stronger reasons than me. He just seemed to not tolerate any other view other than his own. You crossed him at, it, at your peril. And I was a rather shy child, so I never crossed him. Not till I was much older. Then it, all of that sort of fell away. didn't matter to me. But as an eight-year-old, an 11-year-old, I left home at the age of 11. I mean, if you send a child away to boarding school, that's where your child is three quarters of the year. So as a teenager, I escaped the fierce rows that we might have had had we all been living in a house together. Was he proud of your achievements? Did he approve of your career choice? He was very proud. He had a difficult decision to make, and I, I felt for him, especially in retrospect many years later. My first book, First Love, Last Rites, was full of such dark and perverse material that for you know a working-class Scot who worked very hard up through the ranks, and he was torn, I should think, between total horror at the content and huge pride that I, I mean, I not only published a book, had gone to university, I'd stayed at school. No one in our family stayed at school past 16 until I came along. So yes, he was immensely proud. He decided to take that route. And I remember going out to Germany once, uh, I must have been in my, I must have been about 27 years old, and my father took me up to the officer's mess. And to my horror, he, on the way there, he said, well, I want you to meet... Um, Colonel so-and-so and Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so. And he said, and they've all got your book. And I said, oh, really? Why would they have my book? He said, well, because I gave it to them. I bought 10 copies and pushed it in their hands. And I thought, oh, my God. So when I met these fellows, they all looked at me. And they, they were very reluctant even to shake my hand uh, and were very stiff and polite with me. They'd gone down the route of reasonable horror, but my father stuck loyally with pride and I honour him for that. That's uh, as clear a manifestation of how a man who, from a generation who would not certainly be comfortable with saying he loved his son, certainly publicly, that's about as close as, as, as you yeah. could see. That's, that's actually a very beautiful thing that he did. It is. I have to hand it to him. And, and he would, you know, read the newspaper back to front uh, looking for my name. And so I sometimes, you know, in my, let's see, in my 50s, I had a long gap between, let's say, my novel Black Dogs and the one that followed it, Enduring Love. And I'd sit and have a beer with my dad and he'd say, well, some things aren't going very well for you because uh, I look in the paper every day and there's no mention of you. And I said, well, I don't have a book out. and There's be no reason to be mentioning me. And he said, no, 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 but that's a great shame they don't mention you anymore. And I said, he was avid for me to be mentioned in the newspaper. He hit a nerve with me because I hadn't published a book 
So whenever he reminded me of how absent I was from the public prints, <laughs> even as I was dismissive, it jangled and it worried. It, it did bother me too. It was not not question of being mentioned in the press. It was just being reminded that I had not finished my novel. We have two more objects left, Ian. One is fishing flies. I think in my 40s or 50s, I became a, a trout fisherman. With my neuroscientist friend, Ray Dolan, we, we learned together. We became reasonably adept at it. It's a completely absorbing matter to be on a beautiful chalk stream on a summer's day, a large trout lurking in some shade, and you've got to place your fly right where it is without frightening it off and striking at the right moment. And the, the thrill of getting it right is really powerful. But there came a point when I could no longer put a trout through it. And I began to see that trout would writhe on the hook much as a human would. And then I read a little about, a bit about it and I saw that fish have pain receptors that are identical to ours. So trying to convince ourselves that trout don't feel pain uh, it no longer worked for me. I especially could no longer take a big piece of bone, usually a kind of antler that's been fashioned, it's called a priest, interestingly enough, uh, and you clout your trout over the head to instantly kill it. I could no longer do that either. Maybe it was my own death approaching. So I'm left with just these flies, and these were fried by my German friend, who himself was a very adept, I mean, right out of my league. And he ties his own flies. And I suppose, again, it's a bit like the mountain goat. It's something that I will no longer do on principle. I cannot pull the fish out of the water and put them through that agony. And I certainly can't kill them. Hypocritically, I still eat fish, but I can't do this to the trout. These flies also remind me of what contradictory and inconsistent, morally inconsistent, people we can be, or, or I can be. Uh, and it's um, slightly humbling. You think you've got some sort of grip on the world and a morally persuasive view of it, and I look at the, those flies and I realise I don't. Lastly, Ian, a photo from 82 years ago of your mother, half-sister and half-brother. Yes, this is probably the most important and, and, and of course, germane to my novel Lessons. Here's my mother. The picture is taken in a studio. Her daughter, Margaret, must have been about one and a half or two. And her son, Jim, would have been about four years old. The year is 1940. Almost certainly it's a photograph she had taken in order to give it to her husband, who was in the Hampshire Regiment, and he went off to fight in the Second World War um, straight into the inferno of the desert campaigns of North Africa. Now, in a year and a half time, that young woman who's, say, 23, 24 in the picture would start an affair with a sergeant major from Scotland, the man who would later become my father, and they would have a child, a matter of real shame and scandal. 
and they put an ad in the local paper and gave that child away. Uh, my mother went on with her sister and took the six-week-old baby with them and handed it over to a couple on Reading Railway Station. Now, the reason the photograph resonates so profoundly for me is when I look at that young woman, she's very pretty. Her black hair is long and loose. Uh, she has a quite modern look about her and her dress, a blouse, um, some kind of pendant around her neck. But most of all, it's her gaze to the camera is very steady, self-confident, uh, slight smile about her lips. Uh, and it's a woman I never knew. Because I think the moment she handed over that baby, that woman disappeared. And I think that when that baby appeared in our lives, almost 60 years later, for all that time, she lived in sorrow and dismay and regret and in fear of my father. And so it's very important sort of subplot of lessons um, of how a moment, a decision to do something can cast a long shadow over a life. My mother was still alive when my new brother appeared and he went to see her, but she had already lost her mind to Alzheimer's. Had he come just a year earlier, he might have been able to tell her that he felt no bitterness. He was a nice and generous man, that he was loved by his adopted parents, the ones who answered the small ad in the local newspaper, which said home wanted for baby boy, complete surrender. Um, and he would have lifted a great load from her. So while I was writing the novel, I'd completely forgotten about this photograph. And... Um, wasn't even sure if I'd be able to locate it. But there it was in a bottom of a box gathering dust in a corner of my study when Roland's, the central character, goes to meet his new brother. He takes that photograph with him and shows it to him. So it's very significant, very important. Um, a demonstration, if one was needed, of how wars, the vast global public event of a war invades private lives. And so many of my family were uh, shattered, um, killed, drowned in the war. Um, and here's a story that, you know, if Hitler had not invaded Poland, my mother would still be with, being with her first husband, who himself then died in the Normandy landings. And the two children seem very close to their mother there. But when the affair with my father began, she sent them away. Or he made her send them away. I don't know how, we will never know. Uh, Jim was packed off to stay with her very strict granny. And Margaret here was sent away to a rather terrible kind of institution 
in London. And we remained a very splintered family. Um, so I was, and David, the new brother, was sent away, and I was sent away to boarding school. So we were all dispersed. I came out of it best because the boarding school was rather wonderful. Um, I was lucky. It must have been a powerful love affair for her to risk so much and to give so much away and then to live her life in regret. Did any of that regret and the ensuing sadness that must come from that regret bleed into your subconscious, do you think? I think my mother's quietness and sadness, I think I, I was very close to her. In fact, I think one reason I was sent away to boarding schools, my father thought I was becoming too effeminate, too much in my mother's realm. And maybe, yes, something about her sadness invokes that protectiveness that I felt towards her and drew us very, very close. When I arrived, you know, boarding school 2,000 miles away because my parents were themselves in North Africa by this time, I didn't cry like the other boys. I think they just went a bit numb. And I never regained that closeness. Again, my life had totally changed. I was living in a you know, a dormitory with 30 other boys and, and only one rather irritable lady, a matron, to take care of our, our laundry. So, yeah, my life had changed. And, and in three or four years' time, by the time I was 16, I was in love with music and literature and landscape and my head was filled with other things. I'd left home. I'd been sent and I'd left. I think um, her inwardness did affect me. But maybe I was already quite an inward person anyway. That's the wonderful thing about having children. You never know who you're going to get. No, you really don't. You really don't. Um Ian, I've done many of these Penguin podcasts. And in fact, recently the Penguin podcast did a milestone of 5 million downloads. And I can genuinely say this is one of the most interesting conversations that I've ever had. And I thank you so much for it. It will stick with me for the rest of my life. Well, thank you for your dreamily slow motion questions. (laughs) You ask them as if you really want to know. (laughs) I wish I was that good an actor. I do genuinely want to know. Thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. Why wouldn't you want to do that after all? It is brilliant. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Ian's other work, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. See you next time.